I never want to see you again because every time you come into my dealership, you deliver bad news. And then, and then a few years later, this this came about. And like, I, I want to see you every day. <laughs> I said, hey, Brian, I finally get to give you some good news. This accountant has spent an entire career on investigating financial fraud cases in the automotive industry. But what he's doing now could have the biggest impact on dealership financials yet. Today, I'm speaking with Frank O'Brien, a partner at Witham, a technology-driven advisory and accounting firm that specializes in automotive. We discuss catching $800,000 stolen by a dealership controller, the accounting mistake costing dealers thousands, how to attract and retain service bay talent, and much more. Don't forget to click subscribe so you never miss an episode. What's up, everyone? This is Car Dealership Guy. You're listening to the Car Dealership Guy podcast, which is my effort to give you access to the most unbiased and transparent insights into the car market. Well, before we get into the show, this episode is brought to you by Cars Commerce, the platform to simplify everything about buying and selling cars, including the quote unquote follow up. Let me explain. Dealers, fast and effective follow up is crucial for converting leads into customers. But here's the problem 40% of shoppers report that they are not getting timely or helpful responses from dealerships. This is a huge problem because your own team could be leaving four out of every 10 sales opportunities on the table. Cars Commerce makes it simple to measure and improve your follow-up performance. A Cars.com experience report tracks the percentage of leads your team is responding to and how customers rate those responses. While Dealer Inspire's retailing technology enables your team to quickly text follow-ups with personalized financing options to make the most out of every opportunity. To learn more about how you can measure and improve your team's follow-up performance, go to carscommerce.inc experience or click the link in the show notes below. This episode is also brought to you by CDK Global. CDK Global has been empowering nearly 15,000 dealers with the tools and technology they need to build deeper relationships with customers. Their team is keenly aware of the state of dealership technology. And while many vendors promise seamless experiences between your CRM, DMS, digital retail, and fixed ops, most of these bolt-on solutions tend to break workflows and cause more harm than good. That is why CDK has launched a new dealership experience platform. This new integrated software consists of everything you need to operate a dealership efficiently while delivering an unparalleled experience to your customers. Basically, everything working together, not separate, one system to run your dealership as opposed to 10. CDK developed it with an outside-in approach, listening to dealers every step of the way. You can learn more about CDK's dealership experience platform by visiting cdkglobal.com dxp or clicking the link in the show notes below. Lastly, this episode is also brought to you by Witham. I'd like to thank Witham for coming on as a guest and also supporting this podcast. Frank O'Brien on the CDG podcast. Frank, welcome. Thank you very much, Yossi. Appreciate you being uh, having me on. It's funny. It's funny to hear my actual name being called. I'm used to people about <laughs> people are usually about to say my name, and then they're like, hey, "Car dealership guy." <laughs> so it's funny. Quite a change of pace. It's good to have you on. I, I, before we even get into the market, lots of questions from people about where is the market headed? You clearly have a really front row view here with what you do in your line of work. But I want to take a step back before that and just talk about your background, how you got started. Specifically, I saw that you had some background in automotive fraud. Automotive fraud, I did an episode with another gentleman a couple of months back. It was an extremely hot episode. And I just want you to give us a little bit of background into that world, right? What was it like starting in the auto business and really specializing in fraud and parlay that with some of your background? Sure. So I started in public accounting and I graduated from Villanova in 1998 and worked for a regional accounting firm called O'Connor and Drew in Braintree, Massachusetts. And the funny thing is, I still technically, I never left because O'Connor and Drew last year merged with Witham, Smith and Brown. 
which is the third largest automotive accounting firm in the country. So my career path has always been in automotive accounting. And I started off doing taxes and audits like your normal, you know, typical young CPA. And I realized early on that wasn't what I really enjoyed. So I was fortunate in my first, you know, summer after tax season that I was able to just randomly get selected to be on a fraud project. It, it was a very, it was a very intriguing project. And I said at that time, I said, Hey, to the, to the, the, the guy that ran that group, you know, and it was just really just him. I said, Hey, if you can get me on more of these projects, I like these types of projects. And I kind of started that transition. Just give us some, some interesting stories. I'm sure you've seen a lot through your career and I'm sure people are wondering just what are some types of fraud? Just, just, you know, give us a little, a little juicy story just to kick off. So uh, several years ago, we get I, a call I see from, the smile. I see the smile already. <laughs> <laughs> so several years ago, we get it. We get a call from who owns and he said, Hey, I got a dealer in New York that needs help because they think their controller stealing from them and they don't, they don't want to use someone local because they're, they already use a local guy and they're just, they, they need someone from outside the area. So I drive down with Kevin Carnes, who's another partner at the time. We, we get up at like five in the morning, drive to New York, get there. We pull up to the dealership and it looks like a Dairy Queen. <laughs> like one of the old school, like 1960s Dairy Queens, right? And we, <laughs> he turns to me and this, it was funny too, because it was, it was like March 9th. So this is right before the corporate deadline. He turns to me, he's like, I'm so sorry if you're wasting your time. I said, Wasting my time. You go, you're the guy that has to deal with the taxes. I go, I, I have, I, I'm just doing, I'm just doing projects, special projects. I, I'm not that busy right now. So we go in, we talk to uh, a guy by the name of, he said, how's business? Now this is 2009. This is right after the, the market crash. You know, the, the economy's in the tank we're, and we're figuring this guy's going to go out of business, right? Especially if his, his controller ripped him off. And they, they're like, it's never been better. So this is right around the time Subaru really started to take off. So he had made more money that year than he had the previous year. And I think that year he made like a half a million bucks. And we had, we had the account until 2017 when he finally sold. And he, by 2017, he was making 3 million bucks a year. They were absolutely killing it. So he tells me the story. He said, listen, I got a call from my bank. They say I'm $2.3 million out of trust. And before I can even hang up the phone, the controller is at the door saying, you're going to get a call from the bank saying you're out of trust. And here's where you spent the money. And she provides him with a list of all the personal expenses that he's run through the business. And he goes, don't you think that's strange? And I said, yeah, but let's take a look at things. You know, let me get, let me get a bank rec. So I go to the controller. I say, hey, can you give me the, uh, the, the February bank rec? And she's like, February's not done. I said, okay, that's no problem. Give me December, right? And she's like, well, I don't have December either. I said, well, what can you give? Me? And she said, October. I said, okay, fine. Give me October because if cash reconciles through October, it's unlikely that she clipped them for two million bucks in the last five months. So at least we have a starting point. So we're working away, doing a cash flow. Nothing makes sense. The books are a mess. And, and Kevin turns to me and he, and he said, he's, a, he's like, I got to figure out where this money got posted to his loan account. I said, well, let me find the, let me get that bank record. So then I walk up, I said, do you have that bank record? I mean, we've been there for like four or five hours. I said, do you have that bank record? She goes, it got lost in a flood. And I'm like, flood? I'm like, what? I'm like, how? I'm like, we got lost in a flood. Like, Is there a flood what? I don't know about? <laughs> yeah, what are we doing here? So she goes, I go, what can you give me? And she goes, she goes, I can give you June. I said, well, just give me June. She gives me June. It's one piece of paper. It says balance per bank, outstanding checks, 
balance for GL. I said, oh boy, we got a problem. <laughs> so and, and oh, no. we did. We, we launched the, the investigation. She she. I mean, we uncovered that she stole about 800,000, but we stopped at a certain point just because we we're just going back in time. And eventually we just got to a point where the, the, the data and the records became difficult to follow. But you see, ladies and wild. gentlemen, never, never a dull moment in the car business. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. <laughs> you got to love it. So Frank, clearly have had an interesting career. Fast forward to present day. Just tell us a little bit about what you're currently doing. I want to get a bit more of the nitty gritty. Again, given the fact that you have such a front row view into these dealerships and P&Ls and everything. So I want to get into that. But start us out with a bit more about what you're currently doing today. Sure, absolutely. So right now, I still handle some fraud work, especially in automotive related. All my work is automotive related. Uh, and it, we still we still do some fraud projects. But I would say 80% of the work we do is centered around fixed ops and specifically warranty reimbursement. Tell me more about just overall industry. I know that we've talked about I've talked a lot about on the podcast, just about the last three years, dealership earnings have been through the roof on a relative basis or much higher than prior years. We're sort of coming back to pre-pandemic levels now. Give us a lay of the land, right? Where are we at today? What's your outlook? Yeah, we're, we're seeing the exact same thing. The, the last three years were record profit. Gross profits were way above what we normally see. And now the, the month of January was, was a tough month for car dealers. The SARS, I think, was like 14.8 million, which, is, which was down below what they, what they originally projected. So, yeah, so, and again, for anyone that doesn't know what that means, right, you're referring to just the seasonally adjusted annual rate, which is really how many car, new cars we're expecting to sell this entire year. So, so now we're, you know, February's off to a sluggish start as well. We are seeing higher inventory levels. We're seeing the the interest rates are a major factor. So the 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 vehicles are at, a, at the actual cost to buy a, a new vehicle is is at an all time high. The used vehicle market follows the, the new vehicle market, and when consumers are faced with high interest rates, now they're getting hit on both ends, right? They're getting hit on both both sides of it, so that it, it's a more difficult purchase for the average consumer. And and it's, it also extends the loan terms as well in the in the life of the vehicle. So what what we're seeing and what we're we're advising our clients is fixed operations really is going to be the forefront of the upcoming months and you know maybe all the way through the you know, next couple of years. Tell me more about that, right? So first of all, your mar- margins are declining. There's no doubt about it. You mentioned interest rates are an issue. What does that mean? What is really happening? Let's go a level deeper on that. So when the average person, when they, when they buy a car, they don't pay cash for it. They, they finance it. So you have, you have two aspects to the purchase. You have the vehicle that, that you're, you're looking to buy. So you have whatever the cost is, less your trade, less your down payment. So it comes to a net price. And then that gets financed over the course of what used to be five years. Now it's six, seven, even, even sometimes eight years in order to keep the monthly payment down. Because ultimately, most consumers are focused on what can I afford to pay for my car payment each month, as opposed to what is the actual vehicle cost and, and, and whatnot. 
So, so what that what that does is it it it, it ties up you know expendable cash, which is obviously not strong for the industry, but the automotive the automobile the vehicle is is a necessity for the individual. However, if you can take that vehicle and and say, okay, you know what? I don't need a vehicle right now. I can just maintain and service my current vehicle. And instead of trading in and after three years, four years, five years, six years, I can extend that a couple of years. Then that helps the overall personal cost of, of, of the average consumer. So what we're seeing is the it becomes a purchase of need rather a purchase of want. So that which is ultimately gonna hurt sales in the industry, but that should help, you know, the service department and the fixed operations because in order to maintain that vehicle, you have to service it properly and you have to make the necessary repair. Mm-hmm. Do you think the industry is equipped for a potential secular rise in service? Obviously, like you mentioned, car prices are still through the roof on a relative basis when you combine it with interest rates. And But we also know that it remains extremely difficult to hire technicians and you know to properly to have proper labor to support service business. What do you think about that? Yeah, so I think it's I think it's a challenge. There there are some well-run service departments that can absolutely handle the influx of the business, but you have two issues. One, you have capacity issues. It's really the main the main issue, and and that is your technicians in in your in your your service base. So the problem that you we've run into is that technicians and this is no this isn't a new problem. Technicians have been hard to find for the better part of a decade. And what this is my personal opinion on the matter is there are just few it's a supply and demand issue, right? So there are fewer individuals becoming automa- automotive mechanic for two reasons. Number one is, you know, I was, you know, born in the 80s, I graduated from college in the 90s. Ever since I was in high school, there's always been a push for, you know, four-year higher education, right? So, plus those jobs tend to have longer staying power, higher growth potential from a revenue standpoint, whatnot. But on the flip side, the, there are still a lot of kids going into the trades. But from from that standpoint, the trades that tend to get most uh, attraction are the ones that are tied to unions, and there aren't a lot of mechanic shops that are tied to unions. And that's predominantly because the the benefits are better. So, you know, one one of the areas that dealers have never been known for is their benefit, just in general. So it's something that that dealers should look at and maybe try to get creative as to ways that they can attract more people into their business, especially technicians. Mm -hmm. Is anyone doing anything interesting on that end? Have you seen any best practices that you're like, wow, if every dealer under the in, in the country operated this way, there would be a technician surplus. So uh, you know, one one of the areas that is, is is you can get tied into the you know mechanic schools. Like that's a great way to do it. Take kids out of the school. That's that's usually the the primary one. I did have a, a dealer years ago. He had a pretty good benefit program, and it, it was it was just a basic. It was a Christmas fund, right? And what he did was it ran from September to August but it got paid out on December, first payroll of December. But he had to be there to get the money. So he took a percentage of the bonuses and the commissions, everybody that was on commission and bonus, and deferred it till December. And 
it, it, it not only the, the employees loved it because they got a big check. I mean, their sales managers got like 20, 30 grand at right around Christmas time. It was great for their savings, right? It was a forced savings on their end, but it was also really a retention policy, right? Because think about it. You're not getting your paycheck until three months after you finish earning it. Then you're already three months into it. Nobody's leaving their job in right before Christmas because it's too busy, right? Now all of a sudden you're four months and you're you're almost you're a third of the way through the year. So dealers can can use and they can customize that into you know retirement benefit plans or, or uh, you know get creative to to figure out ways to just retain retain technicians because it's not only important to hire them but it's important to retain them because it, it just, it doesn't, it's just no good to spend all the money training the guy and then have them, have them move over, you know, somewhere Yeah, else. it's, I mean, labor is one of the biggest expenses always recruiting. I mean, I'm sure you know, because we've only blasted it like a thousand times already, but we recently launched a free industry job board. So we kind of put it all over the, um, just all over our website and whatnot, but technicians is obviously the toughest part to, to support and to help. The job board is to track again cdgjobs.com and you know you can see there's plenty of different roles there over 100 roles at this point but technicians is a big thing on my mind right how do we make it more attractive and how do you really invite more technicians to a platform like this because it's obviously a huge need in the industry and whoever can solve that will definitely be a billionaire <laughs> yeah <laughs> With everything going on on the service side of the business, tell me a little bit more about what your specialty is in this industry. And I know you're working on warranty reimbursements. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Explain what it is. Absolutely. So the every state has a has franchise laws. Well, we call them state statutes, but they're really uh, you know state franchise laws, which provide certain rights to the to the car dealer. And specifically, when it comes to warranty reimbursement, these states have these laws that allow the dealer to submit for a warranty rate increase on both parts and labor, which will yield, which will ultimately change their warranty rates to a higher number and, and, and yield them more, more profit. And, it, and it's a labor-intensive process because it requires 100 repair orders with warranty-like services, or what we call 100 qualifying repair orders. And in order to get that, you have to get thousands, you have to go through thousands of repair orders. And what's interesting is that with, first of all, the state statutes all vary rather significantly. Some are, some are more like the others, but we, we have some that are very basic and generic while we have others like state of California and the state of Alabama are very detailed. They go through, a, they, they give you very specific instructions as to how to submit, but also what repairs to exclude, which is important. And also it gives certain submission instructions, response time that the, the OEM can only take so long to respond and what, what the process is there. So the, the, but what's interesting and what I've noticed over the years is that you could take the same statute and two different manufacturers can have different interpretation. How did this issue even arise? Where did this come out from that? with reimbursement issues with the manufacturers, right? Where was the line drawn where people like yourself said, hey, we can fix this for the dealer community? Let, let's just start there. So so back in, in the 2000s, a couple states, starting with Jersey and then Florida and Maine, really around 2007, put these laws on the books. And, and what they stemmed from was for the 
length of time, the relationship between the car dealer and the, the manufacturer was a one-sided relationship. You know, they talk about a, a sales and service agreement. It's not an agreement. It's a take it or leave it. You have one choice. You either sign this, Mr. Dealer. If, if you want to be a dealer for whatever manufacturer, you have to sign this agreement, right? So the dealer's not agreeing to anything. <laughs> it's not a negotiation. It was just, okay, and we're going to reimburse you. They'll start off and say, okay, we're going to, at the time, say, back in, the dealer gets his point back in the 90s or the 80s. We're going to pay you 80 bucks an hour for warranty, and we're going to pay you cost plus 40 on the parts side. So fast forward to 2000, you know, mid 2000s, 2007, the, the, the states, the state associations, a couple of them, Florida, Maine started in the Northeast, New York was uh, followed suit afterwards. They rewrote the franchise laws and included a reimbursement, a warranty reimbursement section that then basically required the manufacturer to reimburse the same rates that the dealer is charging to his retail customer. However, in order to determine what that rate is, you had to go in and substantiate what you're actually charging your retail customer. And it's basically, it's a weighted average calculation, right? So if you're marking up a, a transmission, you know, 40% versus you're marking up a light bulb 300%, you know, that's going to ultimately net out to, to, to some other, you know, over the course of the, the weighted average of, the, of, the, of all the, the parts in that same thing on the labor side. Tell me more about just the overall exposure, right? Because it seems like such a niche little thing that you don't, you know, the average person, whether dealer or consumer, I mean, you don't really think about, but it's clearly a big thing. So what's the annual exposure here, dollar exposure that you've seen dealerships lose out from something like this or benefit from it in the case where they do like a reimbursement like this? So the benefit will will vary based on the the, the volume of, of warranty work that you do, and, and also the, the 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 increase that you're, you're you're receiving. But it's also it's a cumulative perpetual stream of revenue. So so we've seen you know d- domestics that will pick up twelve twelve thousand on a labor submission on average, where imports will pick up say seventy five hundred, and, and the the luxury stores will pick up say fifteen thousand. But we we just did a BMW store that was picking up $85,000 a month in parts and labor. On the flip side, we also did a Honda store that only picked up 1600 bucks a month, but they they do it twice a year because Florida you're allowed to actually do it twice a year. Most states are only allowed to do it once a year, but they're they're allowed to do it twice a year and they do it twice a year, so they're clockwork. Every 6 months they're ready to do it and they'll pick up you know, 1,500, two, three grand a month every time, but that adds up, that accumulates over the course of time. The next time that you're submitting, you're actually, you're working from the higher rates. You, you never lose out. It, it, it's at a perpetual stream of revenue, but it, it can be a significant amount. We did one dealership in California that picked, it was $180,000 a month, parts and labor. This is when the California law first got passed. <laughs> they absolutely, if Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram that's incredible. I mean, that's sitting under someone's nose. If, if there's an entrepreneur listening to this or, you know, a dealer maybe, are there other opportunities that exist like this in the car business that come to mind? No, it's nothing even- nothing of this magnitude or this scale. But what's happened in, in what we've what we've helped with dealers over the years is really trying to maximize the the profitability in fixed ops. So they basically go hand in hand. 
I was told a long time ago, but when I was first starting out in this business, was that the dealers are only motivated by two things: fear and greed, right? So, and I remember early on, I was doing a lot of fraud. I was doing a lot of compliance stuff. Like I was even getting involved in like safeguards rule and red flags and all that. You know, F and I compliance. And I had a dealer, Brian Kelly, one time say, Frank, I never want to see you again because every time you come to my dealership, you deliver bad news. And then, and then a few years later, this this came about. Uh, and like, I, I want to see you every day. <laughs> I said, Hey, Brian, I finally, I finally get to give you some good news, right? So, but but we what we've done is we we've really changed the the way we we look at our just our standard fixed ops reviews, and it it yeah we'll look at processes and procedures and whatnot, but we're also looking at profitability trying to help dealers with their profitability because there are there are ways that that a dealer can be more profitable and then ultimately it helps them on the back end with this warranty reimbursement because they can get higher rate from from the uh, from the manufacturers when they submit mm-hmm. well i think what's most interesting to me is typically when you hear help dealerships with profitability you'd think, you know, kind of knee-jerk reaction is it comes at the expense of the consumer. But I think it's interesting here that it actually benefits the consumer. With this specific example, like you mentioned earlier, right? Well, if if I'm being reimbursed, you know, a full market rate for a job for a consumer, I'm going to be more incentivized to do that job. So it's 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 unbelievable how something so small can have such a big, you know, kind of downstream impact on on your customers and ultimately the perception of your brand. Where do you see trends for dealership profitability from here? Where do we go from here? So the you know labor rates are at, at an all time high. I, I, we've seen that, but what, one of the areas is like number one, you, the deal, the, the 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 service department has to be competitive on the maintenance side, right? The the oil change, the the the, the services, the tires, the alignments, those all have to be priced competitively. Where the profitability and where there's an opportunity is in the mechanical repair. It's the mechanical repair because it's a specialized service that you're providing for the customer. It's just like anything else, no matter what you, you, what line of work you do. If The way I look at it is very simple, right? I'm paying for something for two reasons. Either one, I can't do it myself. Or number two, I don't want to do it myself. So that's something that plays into the the car business. You know, the average person can't fix their own car. The cars are becoming much more sophisticated. So the the value of a certified technician from the franchise car dealer has, has, you know, a benefit over the independent. So, but you have to be competitive on the maintenance items to be competitive with the independent. One area, though, that we definitely see uh, an opportunity for dealers to be more profitable is on, on putting in labor grids. So what does uh, that mean? Yeah, what does that mean? So so what a labor grid is is that you have your standard door rate, right? So say your door rate's 150 bucks an hour, right? Then as the hours increase, typically the sophistication of the job increases. So as the hours increase, the the actual rate increases. So if it goes up an hour, it might go up at like a buck 50 and then 2 hours, 3 bucks. And then three hours, you know, four bucks, and it, and it goes up, and it actually usually peaks around like six hours. That's what we've determined. That's what we've seen is like kind of the sweet spot because when it gets up to ten plus hours, 
you don't want to be up over 200 bucks an hour because then you might price yourself out of the repair. You can't, so, and you're going to make a lot of money. So it's almost like a bell curve. It's, it, it, it goes up and then it hits like, you know, that depending on the imports, it's usually like four to six hours on the, on the, uh, on the domestics. It's more in, in luxury. It's more like six to eight hours is, is the peak there. Mm-hmm. Is this a thing now? Would you say this is like pretty common or is this? Yeah, it's fairly know? common. We, we have, we have several dealers that, that do that. You know, some, some don't, but we, we typically, we typically recommend that dealers do it. We have a couple that uh, <laughs> it's funny. We'll go out there and they'll be on a, they'll ask them, you say, are you on a, on a, a labor grid? And they're like, oh yeah. And then you look at it, it's like each, each increment goes up like 30 cents. <laughs> so I'm like, well, we, we could probably get a little more aggressive on that, that grid, guys. That's interesting. I think the interesting part of the industry right now is that if you look at the data, I think Cox Auto put out some data through their X-Time platform. And there are pockets of the country where dealers are losing some market share to the independent repair shops, Right. Do you think these trends are overall threatening the dealership service business? Is there going to be a reversion similar to how there's been a reversion in pricing or it's at least starting? What do you think about that? I think it's a market by market scenario because in, in, in service managers and general managers and dealers, they have to know their market. So when, you, when, when dealers are doing a market rate survey, they, they need to understand what the independents are charging and whether or not you're in an independent market. Like there's some areas of the country and they're just some areas in general. Like you might be, you might be in the Northeast, but you're in a, you're in a, an area that has a strong independent, a, a group of strong independents that really can bite into your overall, uh, overall share. So the key thing for the dealer though, is, is to number one, first and foremost, take care of the customer. The customer come first. The, the best thing a service department can do is take care of the customer. Understand what the customer wants. Communicate with the customer. If you're doing a, a, a really maximizing your quick lane, right? If, if your quick lane services cannot take two, three hours. If a customer is looking for an oil change, they're looking to get in and out in 30 minutes, right? They're not looking to get to, to spend half a day there. I, I had a colleague of mine was telling me a story. He went in for an oil change and state inspection. It took him, and he had an appointment, and it took two and a half hours. And he said, he goes, that was five years ago. I've never been back to that dealer. And, and it's true, you know, it, because people value time in a lot of cases more than money because that time is a, is a precious commodity. Money you can gain back, time you can't get back. So time is, is a very precious commodity. If, if you're doing a big repair for someone, you know, do they need a loaner? Where do they need to get to? What's their, what's their plan for the day? And these are all basic questions that, that an appointment coordinator or a service advisor can ask upfront before the customer even walks in the door. So a lot of it is communication, understanding your customers, understanding what they want. And everybody's different. Everybody's different. So I can't say there's a one size fits it, all. It's funny you mentioned this now because the podcast that's actually airing after this one is with uh, Brian Benstock. Who's the? <laughs> That's great. Yeah, he's the GM and president or VP at Paragon and Paragon, Paragon and Acura. And, 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 yeah, and, and so and yeah. and the biggest thing that I think about when I think about his operation is the pickup and delivery for service. And so you're speaking about valuing time. I'm over here nodding, and it's going to be a really good conversation. <laughs> so it's, honestly, it's going to be a great conversation. I've heard him speak multiple times. The first time I heard him was at the AICPA Auto Dealers Conference, and I. 
I literally went back to all my clients and said, you need to do this. This is the greatest idea I've heard in the last 10 years. It is absolutely amazing. And he executed it. And, and don't get me wrong, it, it, it's not easy, right? Technician, technicians are, are, there's a shortage in technicians. So he had to, he runs, you know, multiple shifts and, and he runs, well, he outsources the delivery service, which is, which is good. But think about it, right? You're, you're an executive in, in, in Manhattan. I mean, your car gets picked up in the middle of the night and, and it's done in the morning. And he, and he, and what's wild is, and I don't want to steal his thunder, but he, he says his, his, uh, labor for labor for our own increased. Oh, I would, I mean, if I had that service available where I live, I would absolutely pay. I would want to, I would just, you know, want to pay like a fixed fee per delivery. Like I would be more than, you know, per mile or however you want to charge it, but it's no, that's like a value add and a half. I mean, for sure. I'm 100%. I'm the same way. <laughs> Zooming out a bit and just thinking about the broader industry and the role you play in our industry, where industry is headed. Do you see any major threats, any legislation on the horizon, anything that concerns you? I don't know about legislation. I, I definitely think that, that what what every what the whole industry is talking about is electric vehicles. That's the the common buzzword. I am a skeptic of of electric vehicles, not in the functionality of them, but more so in just the mandates that the government has put on 2030, 2035, and having an all-electric fleet because the consumer has not, the American consumer has not shown that it's ready for an all-electric all fleet. We don't really have the infrastructure for an all-electric fleet, although that could certainly change. But most importantly, and this is the area that I don't think is talked about enough, is the electric grid can't handle it. And not that I'm, uh, you know, a master scientist, but we don't have an unlimited amount of electricity out there. And the state of California has rolling blackouts constantly. So it, it would it would basically take one problem and replace it with another problem. So I, I think a I think you look at Toyota, they've taken the wait and see approach, which is the right approach. They've really kind of doubled down on their their hybrids, the plug-in hybrids, which makes a lot of sense. And I think there are I think there are alternatives that could potentially impact the the industry so that these mandates, I, I think ultimately will be either lifted or postponed. So as we're heading in here, I mean we're two months now into 2024. What's your just general sentiment outlook for the rest of the year? I think it's going to be a tough year all total, but I think dealers will still be profitable. It's interesting because we're, we're all a byproduct of, of the recent past, right? We all focus on, okay, the last three years were record profits. So if we come down and have, you know, 50% profit, well, that's still a good year. <laughs> but by any standards, if you, if you go pre COVID and, and you were making 2 million bucks and now you're making 5 million and you come in post COVID and you, now you're making 2.5, you, you'd say, oh yeah, that's a, that's a good year. So I, I still think dealers, they'll adapt. They're with some of the most resourceful people we, we've, we've ever known. They really know how to persevere. So I, I definitely think, and, and also too, January, February, I live in the Northeast. So they're typically slow months because of the weather. You're coming off Christmas, there, there's a bit of a, a lag. But the economy is the economy's getting a little, a little tight. So... Is definitely, I, I do think dealers will adapt and still be profitable, but they won't nearly be as profitable as they were in the last three years. 
Humans have a very short memory, my friend. As my dad used to say, though, you get used to the good life very quickly. <laughs> so it's funny. You're right. People do get used to increased earnings, lifestyles adapt, and then you get slapped in the face when things revert. And so it's uh, and it's not just businesses. It's not just dealers. It's it's people. It's the everyday consumer. So it's definitely in for a version. And I appreciate your candor because you're right. It is some not not so positive trends throughout the overall industry, but got to roll through it. So Frank O'Brien, this has been great. You definitely taught me some stuff I didn't know today. So really enjoyed it. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me. I actually had a, I had a great time. All right. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Please give the podcast a rating, consider subscribing to the show and check the show notes for links to what we talked about. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you guys next time.